All right, welcome back. This is Plenary Session, Real Life Edition. I'm joined by two of my great friends and colleagues. I'm joined by Mani and Raj. Why don't we have you guys introduce yourself? Mani, go ahead, tell the audience who you are. Awesome, well, thanks for, for having us. So my name is Mani Moyuddin. I'm currently at the Huntsman Cancer Institute, uh, Salt Lake City, University of Utah, and I focus on myeloma and bone marrow transplant. Myeloma, and how about you, Raj? Uh, first of all, thanks for having us. It's really exciting. I'm uh, Raj Chakrabarti. I'm a junior faculty in Columbia University, and I focus on multiple myeloma and amyloidosis. And you host a podcast, too, in oncology. What's your podcast called, Raj? Uh, yeah, so we host uh, Blood Cancer Talk. So it's a podcast uh, exclusively focusing on heme malignancies where um, we have everything, myeloma, leukemia, bone marrow transplant, and lymphoma. And uh, we try to bring um, like content experts who... Uh, you know, on, on a particular topic and uh, try to do like how I treat kind of episodes. Um, that's great. Yeah. You had Teferi on recently and it was stunning. You know, that's a man after my own heart. He and I think alike and we're maybe a few decades apart, but uh, it was a great episode. Thank you. It's glad to hear. Yeah, Dr. Teferi was great. Yeah. And many great episodes. Okay. So let's get into this. So let's tell the audience where we're going to go. We're going to do three topics today. This is going to be a real life debate. We're going to do early treatment of myeloma, including high-risk smoldering myeloma, and also including slim criteria. Then we're going to shift gears. We're going to talk about maintenance in myeloma, single versus dual, uh, or maybe even more. Who knows what these people are doing for maintenance these days? Uh, Never-ending induction therapy. And then we're going to talk about determination and transplant, because I think on these topics, I think on the first one, we might all agree. By the last one, I think there'll be some disagreement. So let's get started. Early myeloma. Why don't I, I toss this to you, Raj? So, okay, the listener out there, what's the difference between MGUS smoldering and multiple myeloma pre, you know, let's say 2010-ish, pre-slim criteria? What were the definitions of the three? Yeah, so <coughs> pre-slim criteria, you know, myeloma. So let's start with myeloma. So yeah. myeloma is, I think, fairly simple. It was the crab. So any patient with hypercalcemia, renal failure, anemia, or lytic bone lesions. Um, so those would be classified as myeloma. Like they, they say like more than 10%, but let's say if you do a bone marrow biopsy and if it's 8% plasma cell, but if they have clearly lytic lesion and renal insufficiency, it will, be very, yeah, it will still be myeloma. It's very unlikely to you know have that, but um, if you have crab, then you know it doesn't really matter that much how much plasma cells you have. Now, if you do not have CRAB, then that means, uh, and you have a monoclonal protein, then you fall into the precursor space. And that's where you have MGUS and smoldering myeloma. And it, it's like a spectrum. So I usually like to think as, you know, before like 2014. So if you do not have CRAB, and let's say if you have less than 10% bone marrow plasma cells uh, or less than 3%, um, actually, and less than, less than 3 gram M protein, yeah. then you would fall in the MGUS space. And if you have either of those, that more than 10% bone marrow plasma cells or more than 3 gram M spike, then you would f become smoldering automatically. And then within smoldering, again, you have now low-risk intermediaries and high-risk, which I'm sure we'll go into later on. Yeah, I guess that's a great summary. You want to add something about the anemia? <laughs> no, what are you going to add about? So it, it used to be simple before yeah. these changes. And how I would conceptually treat, uh, uh, teach this to trainees and to my patients is, you know, MGUS is low volume, no symptoms. Smoldering is high volume, no symptoms. And then myeloma was high volume and symptoms. And symptoms being defined as, you know, crab, so you're having end organ damage. The slim uh, criteria has complicated this a little bit, which, a little we'll, bit. which we'll get into. But you know, before we go to slim, why don't you draw a few distinctions? I think Raj makes a good distinction because smoldering is either or. So either 10% or three grams per liter, milligrams per deciliter, whichever you prefer. Uh, 
you complicate it a little bit, Mani, and tell us about anemia. Not all anemia is myeloma. So what is myeloma anemia? What's the anemia that you don't call myeloma? Oh, that's a great question. So we recognize that there is a little bit of arbitrariness to this. Uh, a hemoglobin of 10 or a hemoglobin that is two points below the lab's limit of normal is defined as anemia according to the IMWG criteria. Now, the thing is that in Utah, where, where, where I'm currently working, you know, a hemoglobin of, let's say, 12, for example, can be two points lower than, than the lab's Because you're at high altitude. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then these people can be completely asymptomatic. Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit of nuance. There's nothing magic about moving from hemoglobin of 10.3 to 9.8, right? right. Uh, but very mild anemia, and especially anemia, if you find some other cause and you correct it, should not generally be... Um, a reason to initiate treatment for myeloma, in my opinion. That's well put. Okay, let me complicate it for you, Raj. Now you get an 86-year-old person. This person's had high blood pressure and diabetes for many, many years. Their A1C last checked is 11, and their creatinine has been gradually getting worse over a decade and a half. Now their creatinine is like 1.8. Their hemoglobin is downtrending, but they've also got a whole bunch of other medical problems. And then you find an M protein, and you come back at me, and you tell me the M protein is 0.7. Okay. How do I know that the anemia or the renal dysfunction is due to the myeloma versus uh, other things? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. So let me talk about the renal dysfunction first because that I think confuses a lot of people and especially when we get the referral. So if let's say somebody has monoclonal protein and the creatinine is slightly high, um, I think we have good data now from Mayo Clinic and also from the French group that um, my, like the myeloma cask nephropathy, which is the one of the CRAP criteria, it happens only when the involved free light chain is at least more than 50 milligrams per deciliter or 500 milligram per liter. And actually most of those patients have more than 100 milligram per deciliter or more than 1000 milligram per liter. So if somebody has MGUS and has, let's say, a kappa light chain of like 10 milligrams per deciliter and coming to me with a creatinine of three, even without a kidney biopsy, I can tell that 99% this is not myeloma cast nephropathy and something else is going on. Now, it could be MGRS, you know. Uh, for that, we need to do a kidney biopsy. So that's more of a nephrology question at that point. But it's almost, you know, it's very, very unlikely that it's myeloma cast nephropathy. So, I mean, in this patient, the 86-year-old, I would like to know what the light chain numbers are, you know. Um, if the light chain numbers are very high, then I would be concerned. But otherwise, I would think that it's most likely going to be either diabetic nephropathy or something like that. Right. Uh, regarding anemia, I would say the same thing, you know, uh, how high is the M protein that will... Now we have a calculator, you know, the eye stop is a calculator that tells us what is the chances of having a bone marrow plasma cell of more than 10%. So you can plug that numbers and see. And... Um, Again, if it's very low M protein, then unlikely that the anemia is due to myeloma. It could be some other cause. You want to add something to this? Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. I couldn't have articulated it better. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And I think the things, uh, you know, you often see this in the M protein's 0.8, and then the involved chain is 12. And you're like, okay, come on. That's a bystander, right? That's not going to be doing the driving. I think the one key thing, uh, just to remember, is sometimes, especially if the degree of proteinuria, and I mean albuminuria, is really out of proportion yeah. uh, to what you would expect given the clinical scenario, and you do have a monoclonal gammopathy, and it's low volume, you should definitely be thinking of AL amyloidosis because that often, you know, you have a small monoclonal spike or sometimes no monoclonal spike and you have usually a lambda-like chain elevation and then you have a lot of proteinuria. That's the classical scenario. And you're looking at a spot or 24-hour? 24. Ideally, 24-hour is is the gold standard and that's what you should do. should not be making too many decisions on one spot urine protein assessment. Yeah, I agree. Definitely 24-hour. And also MGRS because there are some MGRS where you can see albuminuria too. Good. So... Uh, okay, so then now I'm going to ask you, Mani, a question. 
Okay, historically, when I went back into history books and I try to say, like, why did we ever treat myeloma, but we didn't treat smoldering historically? And the answer is, let's say, in the myeloma case, the thought is you have end organ damage. You want to avert further end organ damage, and it is a reasonable, often people are symptomatic, mm -hmm. and so you can justify treatment saying that almost surely I'm gonna make this person feel better and maybe at least slow or diminute the end organ damage. But in the 1990s, we tried to treat smoldering. There were three, at least three randomized control trials. Why don't you tell us about those efforts and what they found and why we ended up not treating smoldering? Awesome. So previous trials using um, chemotherapy-based regimens, this is prior to Revlimid. Um, so there were trials that compared, um, you, that, that gave patients with what was smoldering myeloma at that time, these chemotherapy regimens, and they found that the time to onset to myeloma was delayed. So progression to myeloma was delayed, but overall survival was was similar, and uh, there was a lot more toxicity, obviously, with these efforts, with, with the chemotherapy regimens. So that sort of set the foundation for not treating smoldering myeloma early, because these patients are otherwise asymptomatic, and early treatment might delay progression, but it was not making them live longer. And uh, that was the, the kind, of, kind of the mindset that we had until recently, and there have been some more trials in this space with some newer agents that aren't cytotoxic chemotherapy. That's great. Okay, so I think I like the way we framed it because now we brought the listener up to, let's say, the mid, -er, the first decade of the 2000s, you know, the definitions that we were using, why we didn't treat smoldering, but we treated myeloma. In 99, Thal comes out with the Jayesh Mehta paper in NEJM. In 2004, Bortezomib comes out. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to get some new drugs and things are starting to change a little bit. Now, Raj, why don't you tell us the International Myeloma Working Group, they made a change in definition. When did this change in definition occur? And what was the basis of the change? Yeah, so the change in definition um, of multiple myeloma, oh, sorry, uh, yeah. <laughs> the change in definition of multiple myeloma, it happened in 2014. So uh, what they did is they added three myeloma-defining biomarkers, and uh, we, you know we call it SLIM. So the first is serum-free light chain of, uh, serum-free light chain ratio of more than 100. Uh, given the involved serum-free light chain should be at least more than 100 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, and I'll, we can go a little bit more into that because I think this is the most controversial myeloma-defining biomarker. Then second is the MRI, more than one focal lesion on MRI, so two or more focal lesion on MRI. And the third is, um, third is the bone marrow plasma cell of more than 60%. So, um, you know, how, why these changes were made. So there were several studies at that time, you know, most of them, I would say all of them were retrospective cohort studies from, you know, mostly single institutions or from registry-based data showing that all of these three, you know, if patients have ratio of more than 100, plasma cell of more than 60% or focal lesion of more than one, the risk of turning into crab myeloma was approximately 70 to 80% in the subsequent two years. And uh, that kind of led to the change in the definition. Um, so yeah, I can go more. No, no, you know, this is a great yeah. start. This is a great, okay, so you're unpacking it. So you get, we add three things to it. And each of these things have differential prognostic value. But the basic principle is we're taking people who were in the smoldering category and in the next few years have a very high propensity to have myeloma. We're just going to call them myeloma so we can justify treatment. One of the things I want to always point out to trainees when I teach them this is that if you move somebody who's high-risk smoldering from the smoldering category to the myeloma category, let's say we made no other changes to treatment in that year, what happens to five-year survival for multiple myeloma just by changing the definition? It increase. It will increase because you are bringing the good players, you know, who were previously smoldering into myeloma now. And what happens to the five-year survival in the smoldering category by moving them out? 
that will improve too because you are taking the bad players out of uh, high risk smoldering multiple myeloma and this is called the <laughs> will rogers phenomenon will rogers phenomenon named after the radio broadcast in the 1940s who once said when the okies left oklahoma to move to california in the great depression they raised the average iq in both states which was uh, back then apparently <laughs> quite a hoot of a joke but yeah. uh, these days you'll get canceled for telling that joke who knows raj has a paper on this i saw that yeah. the will rogers phenomenon that's how i know he knows it yep. yeah he has a nice paper on this okay now, here's my first objection. Maybe I'll toss this to you, Mani. Philosophically, in the 1990s, we had randomized control trials in smoldering. And so what the profession said was, before we treat these precursor asymptomatic states, it's not enough to show me that they're at high propensity for becoming myeloma. In fact, very likely high-risk smoldering has always been that way. You need to prove to me that the routine upfront treatment is superior to treatment when they have myeloma. But when the International Myeloma Working Group changed the definition, they abandoned that philosophical framework, and they say prognosis is good enough to treat. Is there a contradiction there? That is a it's it's a great point, and, and and I agree. I think the gold standard, the right way to 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 have done this would be to have shown that early intervention for this group of patients led to better outcomes, and that would take time. And uh, I think, and I can't speak for what they were thinking at that at that exact point in time. I think their their thought process was that we made a lot of advances in myeloma treatment. Treatment has gotten a lot less toxic than what it used to be, mm-hmm. and because these we know the natural history of this particular subset of patients, it makes sense to intervene early. Um, so that probably is where they came from. But I'm, I'm with you that, and, and I personally think that some of those changes have not aged well. Yeah. And the more we've gotten to know about that subset of patients is that perhaps their prognosis was not as bad as we thought it to be. It was felt at that time based on the data that we had, and as Raj pointed out, this was very small subsets of patients, that the two-year risk of progression was about 70 to 80%. However, as the data has matured, as we've gotten more follow-up, we've gotten more uh, studies from other areas of the world, and we've started doing more advanced imaging. Like PET. Um, we find out that the actual risk of progression is probably closer to about 30 to 40% for some cohorts of these patients. Um, so that again draws into question whether you know should these patients be called as having myeloma or not. So that makes an interesting point. So when they made the definition change, one of the things I always complained about in that paper that Aaron Goodman and I and Sonny Kim wrote in Blood in you know 2021 on persistent reservations against early myeloma, uh, treating early myeloma, was that there's a tiny fraction of people that didn't progress even at five years, even with the prognostic information that they had when they made the change, which means that invariably there was somebody you're going to treat at least five years sooner than they otherwise would have, and maybe even 10 years sooner, or maybe even, God forbid, there's somebody being treated who would otherwise never be treated. But with the new data that has emerged, it looks like I'm a little worried that there may be a lot of people. Raj, you want to comment? Yeah, so I, I would comment on one of the recent papers that came out of Mayo Clinic, you know, by Dr. Visram, who is, I think, now in Canada, and Dr. Shaji Kumar. So um, in that paper, you know, they looked at patients who had a serum free reaction ratio of more than 100, so yeah. they would qualify as myeloma. But, you know, they did, they, uh, they did a clever thing that they excluded patients who had you know, like the other, like for example, bone marrow plasma cell of more than 60%. So only patients who have a serum free lactin ratio of more than 100. And we do see such patients in clinic who qualify for myeloma just because the ratio is more than 100. And then they looked at uh, the 24-hour urine protein in those patients. And they basically, they, sh- they found out that with the 24-hour urine monoclonal protein was able to discriminate patients into high risk and low risk. And actually, those who had a low 24-hour urine protein, yeah. their risk of progression at two years was about 13, 1-3. One, 1-3? Three. One, three. One, three, 13%. And those that. who had um, urine monoclonal protein of more than 200 milligram, their risk of progression was higher 
roughly in the ballpark of 40 person so it's still low still lower than like high risk smoldering myeloma for example right. because there the two year is about 50 person and um, i mean this was you know much much lower compared to what we had thought that about 80 person so you know currently i think we are in a position where even in patients who have urine monoclonal protein of more than 200 if they have no other slim crap criteria if lichen ratio is more than 100 i am actually willing to watch them of and course. and um, you know not treat them actually i agree yeah i uh, we can come to that towards the end but yeah i don't a lot of slim players i don't treat okay and on your podcast with uh more girts he made an excellent point that if you focus too much on the ratio you're putting so much stock in the uninvolved light chain and if an uninvolved light chain has a natural variation from 0.5 to 1 you've doubled the ratio even when the involved change goes from 50 to 51 you know and so we can be playing these games where our ra- ratios over 100 and it's all based on the non-involved chain which is you know you're acting capriciously if that's the case yeah uh, one thing i would say though yeah. that uh, you know i think they do have that the ratio yes, and more than absolute. 100 and, and absolute has to be more than 100 but, but you're people, but you don't right. always follow the absolute part Yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, sometimes in community, you know, I've seen, but I mean, overall, um, you're right that the denominator, you know, dep- it can. Yeah. Let's say the, the absolute is 100, and then the uninvolved is three, and then the uninvolved goes to 1.5. <laughs> right? You go from yeah. 30 to yeah, right. yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think it's led to a lot of confusion. I think all of us, Raj and I, can 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 attest mm-hmm. to having seen patients where um, they've been like misdiagnosed. Like I had a patient recently who was diagnosed as myeloma based on a urinary kappa lambda like chain mm-hmm. ratio of more than a hundred. <laughs> so you know, we all have these like really wow. weird stories, um, and I think that it's just led to a lot of confusion from from what was previously very simple end organ damage to now all of these criteria and. You know that paper that you just referenced. It was published by the Mayo Clinic group, and you know it was the Mayo Clinic data set that originally led to the formation of you know slim some criteria. of the slim criteria yeah. in the first place. And I think that, uh, in my opinion, like we ought to sort of go back and probably revise the definition of myeloma, like not have like that particular slim feature um, in there. But that is also going to complicate things in terms of you know that enrollment and eligibility and, tr- and definitions. But it really. with such a low risk of progression 13% in 2 years to justify continuous uh, therapy for, for that subset of, of patients is is a big deal in my opinion and it really worries me yeah. i mean the the root failure i think is that uh they made a definition change without what they ought to have done which is randomized study and philosophically they were in the exact same boat they were in the 90s okay so here's where i'm going to push you now fast forward let's say 2015 you know companies are treating more people. Definition got a little bit more loosey goosey. Fiber survival went up in both, which also shows you fiber survival is not just a metric of how good drugs are, it's also a metric of our definitions and our metric of supportive care. So, you know, myeloma drugs are definitely good and they've added a lot and our fiber survival is better than before, but not all of the gain is the drugs. These other things. Okay, so now let's say now we start to come up with some high risk smoldering features and uh and some of them have some concordance, but many of them have low concordance, but we have some high risk smoldering features. And there are two, at least two efforts. There's Maria Mateos and Jesus San Miguel in this small phase two study that I'm sure we're going to talk about very briefly. And then there's the ECOG study, and they're both looking at high risk smoldering, and they're randomizing high risk smoldering to treat versus observation and treat when you have myeloma. But my question is, why didn't the same investigators just change the definition one more time and call high risk smoldering myeloma? Honestly, so I ask you that, Mani. Why didn't they just change the definition? Why even do a randomized study? Because you've already conceded free light chain ratios and 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 MRI findings are enough to change definition. Change it one more time. 
I I don't have a good answer to that question. I think in in some ways it would be the simplest way for them to achieve their goals. I yeah. think that you know there would be buy in from some people and I think a lot of people out in the community would start treating if they actually just change that. the definition. I I strongly disagree with actually you, doing that in okay. practice. Uh but I, it could be a simple way to achieve some of some of their goals. Um But let me give you one advantage of changing the definition. Now you treat somebody not with single agent revlimid but you're justified giving them a proper myeloma therapy induction which they may never have needed is that that's the point right there's already some free light chain ratio people who don't there's only th- in fact there's eight, there's what 70 no 87% of people who didn't need that treatment and you already treated them with vrd fair um but i guess i guess <laughs> in my mind i i honestly um i i can't understand the investigators in this because it is the same thing right uh high risk smoldering the things we're going to talk about that are high risk smoldering and why don't you tell the listeners okay just give him pathema and mayo maybe what are the pathema risk factors and what are mayo those are more common ones absolutely okay. so i think uh, for us in the in the us what we use most commonly uh, out in the community is the this is the new um, mayo model which basically uh, is called the 22020 model and this relies on three things so one is the quantity of the m spike is that more than two the second thing is what is the percentage of uh, plasma cells in the bone marrow is that more than 20 and then the third thing is what is the ratio of the involved to uninvolved light chain and is that more than 20 so this is conceptually very simple and uh, i think it's the most widely used because it's you know 2 20 20 um and sometimes you can add a fourth feature to this whether which is whether there are the presence of high risk cytogenetics or not so that is the new um mayo model the pathema model is is probably not i've actually don't really use it a whole lot in our practice um because i think that maybe raj can can uh, can do a better job immunoparesis yeah. cd138 yeah so but your model it's i i don't because first of all the flow cytometry that they use that's yeah. not a validated cd138 you know, okay yeah it's not validated everywhere in the us and you know many centers don't have have it and they have immunoparesis i think personally that pathema model is probably the least um, applicable in current era because it was devised at a time when not only you know before the slim criteria was developed but also when we were only doing skeletal surveys not even low dose whole body ct scan sure um and so you know at that time probably that was built on a data set many of whom we would now call myeloma right. so i think that is the a uh, model with the least external validity probably compared to the other newer models which are probably better than pathema model well said but in mari mateos quidorex don't they use pathema yeah quidorex and also actually in the in the gem caesar they use pathema as well don't talk, don't say gem caesar to me i'm going to have a heart attack okay and then there's the there's an yeah. imwg smm score okay. which is yes. different than the 22020 although mm. it uses the same values but then it you know you you plug them in an equation and it can it gives you more of a mathematical model of what what is the the two year progression mm. so it, it's a bit more granular um and it has the power to differentiate into more groups as opposed to just the 22020 model let's take 22020 give me the high risk group what's the probability a high ri- the highest risk 22020 has myeloma in 2 years so to uh, 50% in in 2 years uh 50% or higher in 2 years is considered high risk as per the 22020 oh, so better than the free light chain ratio with an <laughs> with a low with a low yeah, urine protein better. yeah right okay so it's, fr- it's so you uh, talking about definition changes if you ask me okay <laughs> Now uh okay for the sake of the audience I'll go very quick the two things they need to know I think in the Spanish study QuidRx by Mauricio Mateo Cesar San Miguel several problems tell me if I missed them all number one, uh 
maybe inadequate staging on entry, so they didn't always get PET-CT or low-dose CT, and so there's going to be some people with myeloma in the study, they're calling high-risk smoldering, but they actually had myeloma. Number two, they were randomized to Revlimid dexamethasone or a control arm of observation. When you had progression ultimately on the control arm and you got treatment, you didn't get often an image containing a second generation image containing regimen. You often got old barbaric therapy, including like VAD and Correct. cyclophosphamide. Correct. Okay. The third problem, statistical problem, it's phase two study. The primary endpoint was progression free survival. And they are hanging their hat on an overall survival difference, which was a non primary endpoint and which had a big difference. And anytime you have an underpowered phase two looking at secondary endpoints, those endpoints are severely underpowered, which means that you could have failed to detect a difference when a difference exists, which is how people are taught about power, but also the paradox that when you find a difference, it's much more likely to be exaggerated or spurious. And this is a phenomenon seen often in the literature, especially with this olartumab, Lartruvo, which is a classic example of power failure. You have a huge OS and then in phase three advantage. Okay, so I guess, can we all agree? Any other things about this trial? Yes, yeah, so one more thing, which actually I didn't think about it un until you know Dr. Gertz mentioned in our podcast that the control arm, so these were really high-risk patients, and in the control arm, there was no surveillance imaging. So uh, I think that is not what we do currently. Maybe at that time they were not doing it, but I mean, that kind of, again, decreases the external validity of the results in current era because nowadays we are at least doing some imaging, either a PET or a whole body MRI, at you know, some at some point, yeah. So there was no imaging and they would pretty much show up once they have, let's say, a painful lytic lesion or, you know, have a CRAB uh, criteria. So that's one thing. And I think one more thing is that, you know, if, the, if somebody had a rising M spike, you know, they would still stay on the trial until there is like a CRAB criteria. So, which is, you know, kind of hard to, you know, hard to think about how to fix that, but you know, all of these things would be... Uh, Any yeah. additional? That's a good point. So, the, you know, the summary of all of what you've said is that that trial simply cannot be interpreted and applied to patients today. So much has changed that we cannot use that trial uh, for our practice today. It's a randomized study in Spain with inadequate myeloma therapy, a randomized to Revlimid dexamethasone, or a kiss on the forehead until something bad happens. Really, it's really a, a kiss on the forehead, and you maybe say a prayer, and you put a little, a little, uh, you know, what is it, a, a saint in your hand, and then you do a cross, and then I mean, it's I think it's really it, absolutely no interpretability. Yeah. Okay, now let's and go. I guess there's yeah. one more point which I do yeah. want to emphasize. So you yeah. know, we spoke about how the slim criteria like changed the natural history of both diseases, Correct. right? One more really important thing, which I think is really important to emphasize, is that the use of advanced imaging has also changed the natural history of both diseases. Previously, smoldering myeloma would be a condition in which you did a x-ray, you did a skeletal survey, and you didn't find lytic lesions. If you had done an MRI, if you had done a PET scan, you might have found lytic lesions. Today, smoldering myeloma is a condition where you've done advanced imaging and you haven't found lytic lesions. Right. So the smoldering myeloma of today, solely because of advanced imaging, is inherently going to have a better prognosis. And you can argue that, you know, that is another really big reason why, you know, the, the trials of the older trials and the data from them and the prognostic models from them are just not relevant to today's patients because advanced imaging was not done routinely, whereas it is done routinely. One thing that I really, you know, philosophically struggle with is as we've, you know, as all of these new treatments evolved, right, advanced imaging evolved at the same time. We could have used advanced imaging to spare some patients from treatment because 
you know, you've identified a group of patients who, despite having a lot of plasma cells, it's, it's doing nothing to their bones, like they're having an excellent quality of life. But unfortunately, that's a missed opportunity, right? Yeah, like we had so these- 60% could have excluded people without these things, right? Right, so we had advances in, in imaging, but unfortunately, we didn't use those advances in imaging to spare more patients from therapy. That, that I think, is a lost opportunity, in my opinion. You know, it's funny we talk about this because, you know, in, uh, it's obviously interested me a long time and in the book Malignant, I talk a lot about like when do you know when to initiate treatment, and I go through some of these earlier studies, and I think as the Spanish study made it because the book was fi the final cutoff was 2020 in the book, um, and I talk about you know we have studies in colon cancer and kidney cancer and sort of some you things, and 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 improvements in imaging will always create Will Roger phenomenon. That's a yep. that's something that people in, even in colon cancer. A guy in 1992 with uh, stage three colon cancer with local METs, local uh, nodes, who has a seven millimeter lung nodule would be undetectable in 92. Today we have a guy here in the where hospital where I work. He can he can put a needle in three millimeters, so that can be diagnosed as metastatic. So he's a, he's moved up. Okay, so this is great. Now the the last thing we have to say before we can have the uh, the real argument. The ECOG study, the ECOG study. My quick summary is it's a randomized control trial that I thought initially was actually kind of useful. Initially, they set out to randomize patients with high-risk smoldering myeloma based on the Mayo criteria to Revlimid versus observation. When you got observation, since it was done in the United States, ostensibly you would get United States-based treatment, so it would be good. The primary endpoint was PFS, which I felt was a tautology. Of course, if you treat earlier, it's, you're going to have a longer time to myeloma than if you don't treat. But the secondary endpoint was overall survival, which is now we're getting useful stuff, which was the, the, the reason, the thing we were looking for in the 90s when we did melphalan and we did melphalan and smoldering, we were looking for survival benefit. We didn't get it, we didn't do it, adopt it. Now we're finally gonna look at it again with Revlimid, with the modern drug. The problem is, the trial hit the PFS, and then the investigators gave everyone Revlimid. That was a, a tough one there. Yeah, and I think one really, really big missed opportunity from that study is that the nature of progression events was not recorded well. So we don't know whether giving Revlimid um, averted. actually averted. Well, like, what did it avert? Did it avert a fracture? Did it avert an asymptomatic, you know, asymptomatic change in an MRI? Did it was it just biochemical changes that were averting? And I really think that that unfortunately is a is a big missed opportunity. And uh, we still don't know how patients with smoldering myeloma, like what sort of progression events they have. The modern cohort of patients with smoldering myeloma, and I think that's a big open question in our field. Raj, tell us about the ongoing DARA Revlimid Revlimid study. What's this? So yeah, the ongoing study, the DETER SMM study. So it's a randomized trial of DARA Revdex versus Revdex, and the primary endpoint here is overall survival. So that's good. Um, I think I would have loved to see an observation arm. So it does not have an observation arm, but I mean, I have enrolled a couple of patients in that trial. So I mean, I think it's a reasonable trial given the treatments. You know, they are not too toxic. It's not like you know, Gem Caesar, for example, and uh, it's, so it's a fixed duration. That's another plus. It's two years. It's not treatment until progression. And uh, the primary endpoint is overall survival. So we'll see, you know, how it pans out. It'll probably take a long time given patients with smoldering myeloma are now, you know, let alone having a long survival, even having a long progression-free survival. So it'll probably take a long time to um, find out the results. And they have a difficulty accruing. <laughs> okay, so now let's get into the debate. I think the debate is... I don't know. When you look at the landscape, and I see what people are saying, I think there's a couple of problems. One... If I were to draw a line where you should definitely treat, I'm gonna say crab, yes. 
Although, strictly speaking, I'm not aware if we actually have to do a randomized controlled trial data saying treatment improves OS versus not for crab. But I think that's okay because they have end organ damage and you can avert it. And maybe even, in fact, improve renal function, improve anemia, make Absolutely. people feel better. So I'm, I'm willing to allow that. That's easy. Now, beyond crab, I think you can make the case that it's not just any of these absolute markers, but if you have a plasma cell burden of 70% and you know, uh, you're, you're starting to see, and the, and the pace of it, and then the M protein's going up and up and up, or, or the patient's reporting some fatigue or something like that, you know, that could be a reason to treat. Uh, strictly speaking, you don't have randomized evidence showing early treatment is better. But once you start to get to the plasma cell burden is 30%, and the free light chain ratio is 120, and the, the absolute is 105, you know, that's when I think it's getting pretty soft. And then the urine protein is normal, right? It's getting pretty soft. Um, meanwhile, there's some people out there who say that every high-risk smoldering patient should be treated. So Raj, what, what, what's your practice in this? Where do you draw the line in this? So currently, you know, first of all, I, uh, for high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma, you have to identify it. And with the risk stratification models, they are so discordant that it's a really a challenge in the clinic currently because I have a patient, for example, with Mayo model 20 to 20, they have 45%, let's say, risk of progression or 47%. And with the Pangea model, which was recently published, maybe 2%. So I have that wow. much discrepancy you know, between the two models. So in that case, you know, what do you tell them? But you know, in general, currently, all the clinical trials pretty much are using either the IMWG model, which is the modified version of Mayo model with fish uh, in it, or the Mayo model. So if you, you know, look at those two models, so if somebody has a high-risk moldering multiple myeloma currently, that is a two-year progression, two progression of 50% or more, you know, I usually have a discussion with them regarding clinical trial versus active surveillance versus doing Revlimid off-trial. And if they ask for my recommendation, I usually recommend active surveillance or clinical trial. Uh, I don't recommend, you know, doing Revlimid. Um, but there are some patients, you know, who are very anxious and they just, you know, they, they, they don't want, you know, they, they don't want to be observed. And they, in, in those situations, I think single agent Revlimid for two years is okay. But I, you know, if they ask for my recommendation, I usually tell them active surveillance. What if I'm uh, asymptomatic but 70% plasma cells on marrow? Well, then you're myeloma because, you know, it's a slim crab. Uh, but do you treat that? You'd like to treat that. So uh, that's a very challenging, you know. Yeah. So, I mean. What if you just hit a pocket? I mean, yeah. one thing people don't know is why is it called myeloma? Yeah. When on autopsy, when you saw the bone, yeah. they have pockets of myeloma. Yeah. And, and that's why it also shows up on MRI. Yeah, right. yeah. You're literally seeing the myeloma, multiple, the multiple yeah. pockets of myeloma. Yeah, we were literally talking about it yesterday, Namani and I. So, you know, in these situations, if somebody has 70% plasma cell in the bone marrow, and let's say the hemoglobin is normal, yes. I mean, could it be patchy? I mean, we yes. should maybe we should. Rep I mean, yes. I, I will tell you that I have treated a couple of these patients because you know, in the past two years. But if I get another patient now, I would probably repeat a bone marrow Correct. on another site Absolutely. and see what's going on. And especially if their MRI is negative, there is no focal lesion. They are not at a risk of you know, fracture tomorrow, for example, then, you know, I think it's reasonable to watch with, I, you know, in those patients, I do every four to six months repeat MRI. There is no radiation, you know, and uh, usually insurance approves it. So I would closely watch them. How about you? Where's your drawing for the sand for treatment, Mani? I think it's actually very similar to, to what Raj highlighted. I think that in the past I have treated, I have a, I've, I've treated some patients who've met slim criteria, especially the one based on the bone marrow involvement. I think that the light chain one is more controversial, uh, but, but I agree that, I completely agree with Raj that if I were to get a patient today and if they had a bone marrow plasma cell percentage of 70%, I probably would consider doing what, what Raj has. Um, if anything, it's, it's interesting how, you know, there's such a divide in myeloma, but I feel like over the last, you know, two years that I've been in attending, 
I've actually moved uh, towards treating less of slim criteria. Let I mean, you know, we're not even talking about smoldering hair. Even Correct. slim criteria, I yeah, feel like too. the pendulum has swung towards uh, you can s- you can safely observe some of these patients. Just goes to to show all the controversy in our field. Yeah, uh, and I'm I'm close to you, but if anything, even more um, observation, uh, uh, more prefer observation because. Um, you know, at the end of the day, how do you look somebody in the eye and you put them on? It's, Revlimid may be tolerable, but it is a teratogen. You know, it does have secondary malignancy. Like the risk, it's not like we're putting pe- somebody on like Gleevec, you know. Uh, we're putting somebody on a drug that I think we underestimate. I mean, it has REMS, for Christ's sakes. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, it's a very safely guarded medication and has a unique uh, safety signal, safety program because it's not nothing. And, you know, bortezomib has toxicity. All these treatments have toxicity. There's no... Uh, there's no Gleevec of myeloma yet. Maybe Ag- Dara. Agreed. And if we had if we had that kind yes. of an agent, I think that we would I think the, the entire discussion would be different. Different, right. right? Our threshold might be a little lower. If you had a quick, easy fix for myeloma that was you know not that toxic and achieved the goal in a short period of time, I think we would all be, you know, perhaps more on this bandwagon of early intervention. But we don't have that, unfortunately. You know what I think? Let's say hypothetically I have a pill. It has like almost no toxicity. It's like an ACE inhibitor. And it costs like just five cents. Okay? And you come to myeloma and you have this new pill. And it's like so cheap. It's like, let's just say it's met, you know, something like metformin. It's a repurposed drug. And it, and it can knock, er- the myeloma goes to nothing. The same investigators now who say we should base our decisions on MRD and PFS, they'll say we need a large, multi-center, randomized control trial of 10,000 people powered for primary endpoint OS before we use this cheap, easily available <laughs> medication with no toxicity. <laughs> they will. I guarantee you they will because that's my, that's my feeling. Okay, so now we painted the picture, and I think we're all very similar here. I guess, is there, uh, uh, I'll, I'll say my frustration, and I'll toss it to you too. My frustration is I see a lot of uncontrolled studies with a lot of therapy for these people that we really don't even know they need any therapy at all. And I wouldn't even have a problem with it if it had a control arm so that you could, at least after we randomize the first 100 people, you could say, oh my God, we have a death signal here, for Christ's sakes. This is a Bellini picture. You know, This is a Pembro picture. We need to halt this trial for death signal. But because it's uncontrolled, because it's run in rich centers where the patients being put on them are gonna be better than the average person, and you're giving them like just tons of therapy, including CAR T-cell therapy, including uh, for long, until recently, Belantamab was being done in this setting. Um, you know, you don't know, you know, the, the investigators are saying, well, we don't, maybe more treatment will cure them. What I want to say is, you don't know more treatment is hurting them, and you have no way in your study to even detect that. So, to me, this is a crazy, crazy town. And, uh, okay, thoughts on this, Raj? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I agree. So, you know, especially in trials where they are testing, like, I would say, intensive treatments, you know, which have a potential for harm. I think, I mean, you know, I would be really uncomfortable enrolling um, one of my small ring patients in that trial, you know, given I feel like currently with advanced imaging, I mean, we have, we can watch them so safely. And, you know, it's usually like, you know, they, they won't like, they, they, they will take time to declare. It's not that they will have fracture in overnight. And we have advanced imaging now, which we did not have before. So, you know, with you, I mean, without a control arm, I think, you know, it will be, ve- it will be very hard to even find out you know what the message of the trial is you know maybe there is an MRD negative rate of 30% but what does that mean you know for example which was the 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 Shaji Kumar uh, study from Mayo Clinic that's not Gem Caesar that's Aspire it's the Ascent trial Ascent. the Dara and that the primary input was stringent CR yes 
And technically, the trial did not even meet its own stated primary endpoint of stringent CR. Uh, yeah, it, it seems so. We don't have the manuscript yet, but uh, based, based on some on of the numbers. Yeah, which tells you something, that you're giving somebody the kitchen sink and you can't even hit the stringent CR. Okay, Mani, your thoughts on this epidemic of uncontrolled. I know you published a paper in this space. Right. I think that because the fundamental question of whether we should treat these patients at all uh, or not is unanswered, I think that all of these extra small studies that are going on, uh, they do nothing to, to address that question. And, you know, it's that same like philosophical divide. If you're convinced that the data that we have today is enough to, to treat smoldering myeloma, then to you, those trials, you know, might make sense. But it doesn't do anything to convince the, the people who don't think that treatment is, is necessary. And without a control arm, you can't really tell, um, in a single arm study without a control arm, you can't really tell whether, you know, th that intervention is actually hurting people. You might have some toxicity related deaths, which might not have happened. And exactly. without a control arm, you would not know and that has that has been the case for some of these studies and if they say something like the investigators will say well our median OS is better than it usually is the problem with that is you're comparing apples and oranges it's this classic you know we looked at this uh, registry of people and, and they're super sick but we're comparing it to our like exquisitely selected people yeah, on the and trial. it's all the more the the worst in this particular situation because of the reasons we mentioned yes. because we've changed the definition and because we've now started doing advanced imaging so yes. th those Estimates are even more unreliable. I mean, putting it all together, let's clo closing the conversation. I'll give you guys final thoughts. But my closing conversation, I would say that what are the real takeaway points? I mean, I, why do I like it so much? It's a microcosm of this like classic debate in medicine. And you know, I got into this a lot in the book *Malignant*, where one is when do you decide when to treat something, and uh, do you treat based on prognosis? And I think like the fallacy here is they change the definition based on sort of a weak prognostic evidence that has been eroded over time. Meanwhile, in the smoldering category, they used to run randomized studies with the right idea, like OS or not. And the irony is, there's no prognostic marker that will ever tell you somebody benefits from treatment. Even the perfect marker that says 100% will progress in two years, you really still don't know that you ought to have treated them two years sooner. The only way you know that you ought to have treated them two years sooner is a randomized study showing an overall survival, health-related quality of life benefit. And that principle was true. 15, that principle was true in 92 when they launched the Melphalan studies and they once upon a time understood it. And now 2022, they've forgotten that principle uh, and one can wonder what has happened to make them forget. Okay, closing thoughts, we'll do Mani then Raj. Raj, you get the last word. Yeah, I think just echoing off your point, I think that it was probably easier to show an OS difference at that time. I'm just giving you the counter perspective. And sure, it just but, takes, but it look, takes at, a much longer look at Maria Mateos. How quickly did she get that OS with that <laughs> control arm, huh? <laughs> right? You, one could argue that today it would be even more difficult. It would be more difficult, um, especially Not if you give good post-protocol <laughs> therapy. But the thing is that, you know, what disappoints me and makes me sad is that I see other hematological cancers with, with similarly good prognosis, and they are doing these studies. CLL. So CLL, there's a SWOG study that, that is looking at this and you know they have good post-protocol therapy built into the protocol which was a missed opportunity in our Lendex Meteo study so um, you know hopefully we'll have some good work coming out in this space um, you know fingers crossed and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully you know shift the field positively. Raj, closing thoughts? Uh, yeah, exactly my thoughts. I mean, regarding smoldering and slim uh, myeloma, I would say that whenever I see an asymptomatic patient, it's extremely hard for me to start, you know, treatment, you know, especially with, you know, if they have toxicity, for example, even with Revlimid or even with, you know, steroids, the toxicities I've seen with uh, smoldering patients, 
they tend to be bothered more by it compared to a newly diagnosed myeloma patient who started it because they were having bone pain or you know other symptoms. So it's always hard to treat an asymptomatic patient. And the second thing is exactly as Mani said that you know we don't. Uh, we shouldn't be comparing with breast cancer or colon cancer where, you know, for example, we can clip a polyp and cure right, a pre-cancer, you know, unless, at least in myeloma, we don't have any drug like that yet, right? I mean, uh, th there are trials which will be opening on teclistamab and siltacel in smoldering myeloma with the hope for cure. We will see, you know, if at least based on the historically what we have seen, the response rates are always lower in smoldering myeloma compared to newly diagnosed myeloma. We'll see what happens with those uh, trials. Yes, yeah. and last I think word. one last yeah. point yes. is that I think that there is no evidence to say that smoldering myeloma is inherently a more chemo responsive condition than myeloma. A lot of our trials right. are built upon this principle, but right. I do not think this principle is empirically true. Drugs that don't cure myeloma ain't going to cure smoldering. And you know, the last thing I'll say is that we call it MGUS, and it sounds like docile, and smoldering sounds bad. I mean, smoldering, you know? <laughs> I bet if I had a different name. I really think if it had a different name, people would treat it differently. It has a bad name. And then, and then I also think if the pill were cheap and no toxicity, then they'd do the right randomized studies. <laughs> Suddenly they have a different two. Okay, that's it. Uh, that was a nice, I think that's probably one of the best discussions I've heard. Because I think we said, you know, we've all been doing this for a long time now and we put all the points in. I think we covered it nicely. Now let's talk about some places where we disagree. You know, main, let's, maybe we'll do the maintenance first and we'll do the transplant. Maintenance. Okay, so what is maintenance? Maintenance is this idea in, in oncology that you previously had a fixed course of therapy and now you're going to, at the completion of the fixed course, take people and put them on an indefinite or prolonged extended course of perhaps some of those agents or a different agent. You know, in lung we have switch maintenance with Pemetrexid. That was an old idea. Now every immunotherapy trial is built in, quote unquote, maintenance because the company BMS learned after IPI that you just gotta keep giving this shit and never stop it, right? So they learned to keep it on. That's a maintenance. And anytime you take a treatment that used to be fixed and extend it, I think people may forget, but in oncology, we used to have trials. In Malignant, I talk about some. We took small cell lung cancer patients, gave them four or six cycles of chemo, and we stopped with four because we realized that even though you can get a deeper remission and even though you can delay a PFS, you don't increase an in OS, so why add treatment on the end? So the idea was don't extend treatment merely for response and merely for PFS. That was an old idea in oncology going back many decades. Enter myeloma drugs. We have a lot of maintenance. People do Velcade, Revlimid maintenance, dual maintenance, perhaps for your, you, you can tell me all the mutations you like to do it in, 1114, this or that. People do KR maintenance based on Forte, we'll talk about. But my argument, my first argument is gonna be, there's only ever one drug that I'm aware of that has ever shown an overall survival benefit in a maintenance setting, and that is sweet, sweet lenalidomide. I mean, it did show it. It showed it in individual randomized control trial, at least one, the Phil McCart uh, McCarty, what's his name? McCarty? Yeah. Phil McCarty study. And it also showed it in a meta-analysis of randomized control trials. Correct. If anything, I would say that that benefit may be exaggerated because of post poor post-protocol care. I don't know that to be true because many of those trials don't report it at the granularity I would need. So in other words, would you still have had that benefit had you had better post-protocol care in the control arms of those studies? But put that aside. The second thing that eroded it, in my mind, maybe that we have just so many better drugs. Okay. And the more better drugs you have, the less likelihood the maintenance in the front line would have had a benefit. So I'm willing to say though, however, it did meet this bar of OS, which is the bar historically has been, and I actually do prescribe maintenance revlimid in my practice. I give two years, I don't give more than two years because I don't have seen proof that more than two years is better. We'll answer that someday. I look around at my colleagues and I see maintenance VR, 
Velcade, Revlimid, which has no rant, you know, we'll talk, okay. I see still people doing Ixa Revlimid, which I think actively has negative, negative data. Ixa alone had negative data. I see people doing indefinite induction. Let's be honest, in the community, I mean, not in the community, even some, like, what would be the equivalent of an indefinite induction? I've seen people who don't change the dose of Revlimid. They keep giving it, you know, they're giving it until the treatment rate at ALL starts. Okay, so my stance that I'm willing to take is the only one you should ever give is Revlimid. And if you want to give more than Revlimid, you have no data. doesn't matter what, how many Q, one Q, you can have 25 one Qs, okay? I don't give a shit. You don't have randomized data. Okay, now you guys push back on me. Okay, Raj, you're, you're a little bit different, so take me. Well, my view has changed on this over time, yeah. you know, because of the data has emerged. So I would say the first of all, regarding Revlimid, yes, Revlimid had a very strong OS benefit. And in the meta-analysis, I think it was about two and a half years OS benefit, like median, right. which is like, you know, we have not seen with, I think, any other treatment in myeloma. But one point, which actually I, you know, I've heard Dr. Costa say, and I think it's a very important point is that the induction regimen, not only the post-protocol, but the induction regimens in all those trials were extremely suboptimal. So for example, the Philip McCarthy study, the uh, CLGB study, you know, that had even some patients, I think, only dexamethasone on induction, not even like a, you know, Velcade or, or Revlimid. Only dexamethasone? There are some, I think, wow. in the, if you look at the it's table. Like the kiss on the forehead. Uh, yeah, it's a less, uh, I think, very f small number of patients. Okay. And also, there are many patients in that trial who saw Revlimid the first time during maintenance. In the maintenance, yeah. right. So but if it, anything, that exaggerates the benefit. Yeah, that okay. exaggerates. Okay. So, okay. so that's why yes. I think that if we were to do a randomized trial today, the overall survival benefit will be much, much lower. Maybe gone. If or maybe gone. Yeah, if, right. yeah, if, okay. if at all. Go on. So that's with the Revlimid. But sure. yeah, I do give Revlimid because of, you know, there is overall survival benefit. Not dual maintenance. So I used to, you know, do dual maintenance for high-risk patients before. But now, you know, there are again some data in the era of quadruplet induction and transplant that, you know, patients who have either standard risk or those who have only one high risk, they actually do really well, you know, overall. So currently I've limited doing like the dual induction that is a PI plus rev limit, either VR or KR, only in patients who have double hit myeloma, that is two high risk abnormalities. Now, if you ask me that does that, you know, improve overall survival, I don't think we have any data. And that's again another point that Dr. Costa makes that the same, like in double hit patients will probably do worse no matter what. You know, it's unlikely that just by doing the same drug, you know, you're gonna avert like progression. So I don't know, I mean, definitely. Just yeah. to push the argument, I guess, hi hypothetically, mm -hmm. one could imagine you take that ultra high risk cohort, you put them on KR versus observation, okay? And, and but at observation, when you progress, you get really good second, you get really good next therapy, you get teclistimab, you get siltacel, you get whatever you want, you know, KD, you get whatever you want. Hypothetically, you'll have a worse OS by temporizing the disease with this sort of, you know, weak KR. We don't know that yeah. to be the trade. We don't know. I would still not take out the R because you know there is there was a recent paper also from the Myeloma 11 study showing that Revlimid actually you know improves outcomes even in high risk patients for okay. maintenance. So I think Revlimid is kind of tried and tested. So at least two years, you know, if it's not indefinite, I would not take it off. But you're right with the carfilzomib. I mean, the PFS benefit that was seen in the Forte trial of KR versus R it was very modest. I think 10 to 15 percent. You know, yeah. it's not. It was not. The curves were not that separated, and there was. Clearly, no OS benefit. So and you know, and it's not powered for it. So if they're gonna, even if they get it, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, it's phase okay, two. Yeah. it's phase yeah. two. Okay, now you, where do you do? So this is something that I really struggle with. I think this is like the most painful part, in my opinion, of, of being a myeloma doctor in, in terms of decision making, because it is a huge opportunity cost for patients. Yes, and cool. you have 
took patients through months of induction therapy. You took them through a transplant. They finally recovered. They got a taste of what it was to be off therapy because yes. they're off therapy for two months. And now you bring them back in clinic and you tell them that you're going to give infusions weekly for the next, you know, several years. And, you know, there's some protocols where infusions are given twice a week. I'm not even, I'm, I don't even entertain that idea. <laughs> but, um, so that is a huge opportunity cost. So I have really struggled with it because what I've seen uh, over the last two years is that the really high risk biology, um, and this is shown in trials as well, they progress through doublet. Correct. All right. And then there's some patients who you're giving doublet to and they're not progressing. And for all I know, they might not have progressed on Revlimid and I just made them come every week for, for years without any uncertain benefit. So I think my practice is, I would argue, perhaps a little bit similar to Raj. Um, if Let's say if it's, and again, I don't base this on high quality data, Forte is the best we have. There's another trial called the ATLAS trial, which basically compared KRD maintenance to Revlimid maintenance post-auto. And I think that's a very uh, flawed trial. Well, first of all, like, you know, twice a week K, like, you know, for such a long period of time after transplant is very, it's brutal to patients. And there were three times as many patients in that trial who just left because of patient preference in the KRD arm compared to Revlimid arm. That's enough attrition, enough censoring going on in that study to render the conclusions invalid, basically, Good in my point. opinion. So that study is unreliable. Forte, with I take that with a grain of salt. Um, so if somebody has just gained one Q, for example, they have no other high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, I do just Revlimid. If somebody has, um, you know, deletion 17P or 414, I will have a discussion with them about the opportunity cost, about the potential benefit, PFS benefit. I tell them what PFS actually means, and I have this discussion with them, and after that, a lot of the times, sometimes they, they don't want it. They're like, you know, it's uncertain. It's going to take away my quality of life. I won't know that I live any longer, and I don't want this, and that's fine. If they decide based on this that they want to continue with therapy, I will use carfilzomib. I do not do it twice a week. I will do it once a week. There are some situations where I've used Velcade plus Revlimid. That has a lot weaker ground because with carfilzomib, at least you have, you know, the Forte study. With Velcade plus Revlimid, you have literally no high-quality data to guide you. So those are my thoughts, something I really struggle with. I think it just sort of depends on, you know, what the patient thinks once you honestly present this data with the limitations and with emphasis on the opportunity cost of what this is. Last thing I'd say on this, and then get your opinion. I, I think one could even be more provocative and argue you don't even need to know the risk. If you, if you, you don't even know P53, you don't know 1114, you basically have one arm of a strategy, and the arm is just this. Either if you can take it, you get VRD, and if you can't take it, you get DARE-RD, and then you all get arm maintenance for two years. And then when you progress, we'll follow you, you know, we'll, and when you progress, then you get, you know, DARE-KD, let's say, if you got DARE-RD. The, the one thing they don't like to do in the Siltasol study, you know? <laughs> the good stuff. Okay, you get the good stuff. Okay. And then the other arm is, you know, you send to the expert myeloma doctor, you're all collecting buckets of the urine, you know, you're looking in the urine, you're looking in the, you're looking in the fish, you're doing all this thing and you're customizing. And I guess I would say that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that we have strong evidence that the community doctor is doing VRD, DARE-RD, and then R for everybody, irrespective of risk. They don't even, let's say they don't even know the risk. It's fine. Thoughts? <laughs> I mean, you know, currently, given that, you know, patients, usually they would want to know, you know, what their fish abnormalities are. Most patients, you know, even like MRD, for example. So I think it's hard to, you know, and I think the fish does help somewhat. You know, for example, if it's a double hit, then you know that those patients do really poorly with the current treatment. So if you have a clinical trial available with, you know, early CAR-T, for example, you know, then I would want to look for that. And, you well, know, couldn't you put them on the trial when they just relapse? 
You know, like, do you, do you need to know the information up front or can you just follow their bio? What happens to them? Yeah, you could, you know, but sometimes when they relapse, you know, they're very aggressive and, and there's a missed opportunity. Again, you know, this, there is no, like, firm data yeah, on that, yeah, but, yeah. like, sometimes when you, when you lose control of their disease, the, some of these double hit patients, then they keep progressing rapidly through all the, yeah. you know, courses of treatment. And there, there are some thoughts that in those patients, maybe there is an opportunity early on, you know, to consolidate them. And that, you know, again, we, we need more data on that, but... Um, I, I, w- I would yeah. push back on Yeah, that. push back on it. And I think... You, you, we can argue, yes, we don't have high quality evidence that, you know, anything is different that, that it leads to any different outcomes, okay. but like, or, or, or that different approaches would lead to different outcomes. But I do think that that information is very valuable. Yeah, I think that if why? I think of myself as a patient, I think that knowing that information, knowing what the fish holds um, would help me plan my future, would help me sort of, you know, have an idea of how the therapy would work. Because those things are, they are very prognostic. You can't debate, you know, the prognostic value because that is is, is evident. And I think that multiple myeloma is, like like other cancers, it is it is incredibly heterogeneous, yeah. right? There's some patients with very good outcomes, some with not so much. And FISH is a very important piece of that puzzle. Um, and I hope for a future where we can have, you know, separate high quality randomized studies for different subgroups. Sure. And then we can actually treat it as perhaps different diseases, uh, but recognizing its importance and um, I think is, is the first step towards that. So but those are my I thoughts. I guess to be honest with you, I guess this is one thing we maybe defer personally because, I mean, I, I guess as I've seen a lot of this, and tell me if you disagree, the person comes in with the good risk cancer, really good risk cancer, you know, and you go to tell the person, I've been there. I told the person like your cancer is good risk, and then within a month and a half they're dead, right? Agreed. And we all have the person with P53 and they're still alive, right? Agreed. And so I guess if I'm the cancer patient, knowing, I don't know, having done this for eight years, I guess, and having seen the, the things, prognosis maybe, it puts a midpoint in you, but it doesn't put the whole distribution. Agreed. And I always tell people, the first thing you do when you get the diagnosis is you prepare for the worst mm-hmm. and hope for the best. So you gotta do your will. You gotta do the brother you don't talk to, the sister you've not seen each other. You gotta make the amends. Okay. You gotta get your will in order, as if you'll be dead in two weeks. We don't, I mean, you don't know. You know, to be honest, and I even tell them, like, I'm the doctor. I don't have, I don't think I have myeloma, but I could be dead today. I mean, get hit by a bus. You know, and so I guess I don't know. Do you really? Would it really change you if you knew that you were, let's say, you you had three copies of one Q or you didn't? Would it really change how you go in go into it? Personally, one Q not so much, but I do think if I had double hit myeloma versus if I had myeloma with hyperdiploidy, I do think it would sort of change my perspective. You go, you would you quit your work faster or? I think I think I might quit my work faster. Like I think you should quit either way. I might make different life decisions uh, either way because it's such a life changing diagnosis. I yeah, I'm just on the. My personal opinion is that in a health in a healthcare setting where there are enough resources, it it makes sense. One can argue that in lower resource settings, this information perhaps is is is, this is not enough. Like you know, you don't need to do it because it doesn't impact your management. But I think in the U.S. today, I every fish you're doing is a a mother who's not getting folic acid. I just want you to know. (laughs) 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 I just want you to know. No, okay, fine. All right. So you know, one one point I wanted to make, and I think this is where maybe you know we may disagree a little bit that in younger myeloma patients who are high risk, like I have like some you know 40s and maybe early 50s. In those patients, I do make clinical decisions based on MRD, although there is no randomized data yet. Because, you know, if somebody, let's say, I have a 41-year-old patient with double hit myeloma, you know, I know that their life expectancy is going to be, you know, much shorter. And um, overall, based on the prognostic data that we have, 
and there are, there is clearly some you know prognostic again not treatment but prognostic data showing that if you can achieve a deep MRD negativity in those patients you may be able to make a dent in the natural history of the disease again that's not proven in randomized trial but I am willing to accept that level of you know evidence to kind of push to get them into MRD negativity in younger patients but definitely not in, a, in an average 70 year old myeloma patient yeah and I guess I mean I feel you emotionally because there's nothing harder than burying a 39-year-old with myeloma. I mean, it's not easy. And, uh, and so I, I feel the human part of that, you know. But I don't agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, uh, you know, people like information. You know, there's a, there's a lot of really big lane labs, and all they do is they take somebody who has cancer and they sequence all the stools, you know, because they have information. Now, whether or not you can use the information that's, that's another question. Right. Like, yeah, it's a spectrum, right? Like some information is very useful. Some information is not so useful to the patient, but it might be useful for our careers. I think fish is useful for the patient. It is useful for it's us. It's right up there with mass spec. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last topic, last topic. Um, transplant. Okay. And I don't think I know your opinion on transplant money, but I think I know Raj. I want Raj to persuade the listener why Raj is right. But I tell that my, my side of the story is... Um, you know, obviously the history of transplant was in the 1990s, early 2000s. And you're going to cite your meta-analysis, but you include some of these old-ass studies. Okay, but in the, in, the old, in, the, in the early times, in the early diggity, back before we had any good drugs, you know, it was absolutely clear to me that in CR1, an autologous transplant in multiple myeloma uh, with MEL, 200, 160, something like that, clearly improves overall survival and progression-free survival. And you needed to do that because you didn't have anything else in your quiver for when the patient progressed. So I was totally sold. When I was a trainee resident, I was like auto CR1 everybody. And people were talking about moving away from it. And I was like, you know, with carfilzomib, they got so excited that CRD, you wouldn't need auto. And look at now, CRD didn't even beat VRD. They were so excited. When I was a fellow, they said CRD is going to beat VRD. Didn't do it. And they said CRD is going to obviate the need for auto. Didn't do it. So, okay. So I was a big believer. Then I think we had uh, Michelle Atal, uh, IMF uh, trans study. And it was auto in CR1 versus no auto in CR1, but effectively like 70% of people got auto in the control arm. And that's what we call contamination. It's also really a trial of CR1 auto versus most people getting CR2 auto. And that failed to show a survival benefit, but did have a PFS benefit. And so then I was like, okay, let's put a pin in it. I mean, you could tell the patient that if you do it now, it's, it's not a question of to do it, it's when to do it. That's really how that trial should be interpreted. You could do it now, have a better PFS or do it later. Then we had determination with Paul Richardson, and a medical writer wrote it, even though it was Dana-Farber funded, just for interesting, just, just an intro, I didn't know we have difficulty writing 3,000, okay, interesting, okay, so, okay, we have determination, auto CR1, it's the most newest study, so you have the most new drugs, but even it doesn't have all the drugs I have today, it didn't have teclistimab in it, I don't have TAC, and, uh, you know, it didn't have CAR-T, um, so, Auto CR1 versus no auto CR1. In the no auto, in the no auto arm, 80% never got an auto. And we have a PFS benefit. It's decent sized. The OS curves are still superimposable. Still for now, superimposable. And in health-related quality of life, they're superimposable with a dip, a dip at the moment of transplant, but then superimposable again. The argument I always make is people say, well, by delaying PFS a lot, you improve quality of life. My counter argument is that if that were true, the quality of life curves would separate into the future. I don't see that to be the case. All right, so my view is, and my current practice is, I'm a VRD, unless you're really frail, then I'm a D D DR, then I'm a Maya study, and then I put you on Revlimid maintenance, 
And then I feel like, you know, I, I'll tell you that, you know, maybe someday down the road you might need an auto, but we're really getting to the point where we'll, we'll see how you do and you might never need an auto in the rest of your life and you might get something else. So I'm not like, I don't feel obliged to refer everyone for auto CR1. Um, that said, some people want to do it and that's fine. You know, people always want to do things. What are your thoughts, Raj? And then we'll go to Mani, who I don't know. You like CR, you like yeah. auto. I overall like auto in myeloma, I think. <laughs> uh, so, but you know, with, with nuances, of course, based on the determination study. So I use Dara VRD induction, you know, for most patients uh, and- Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's the topic we didn't pick for. That's, yeah, another, that's, to that's another show. That's another, yeah, Fine, for another day. Another so yeah, so basically when I'm seeing a younger patient with myeloma, so I look at the risk, whether the standard risk or high risk. If they are standard risk and if they're responding well to induction therapy, I do discuss with, with them the option of early transplant versus delayed transplant. And, you know, I would say that many of my patients, you know, somebody who is in the trial, you know, they only had patients less than 65. So in, in real world, sometimes when I'm seeing a patient who is 60 and I, I feel like when they relapse and I don't know whether they will be an auto candidate or not, you know, let it, you know, get it over with. Let's get it over with now. So. That is kind of my philosophy. Now, if standard risk and if they're responding well, I'm totally supportive if a patient wants to delay auto. In high risk patient, if they're high risk, then I think we still don't have it because you know we you know as you said the, our meta analysis had some older trials with you know induction regimen was not what we would do now. It did have an overall survival signal with auto early auto you know versus in those delayed studies, auto. I agree. In in high risk patients, now in determination the sample size was too small in that subgroup to tell anything about high risk. Now, I, but you know, I think the overall survival and determination, we still need more follow-up. It's only six years of follow-up. And in the EMN trial, we have seen in Europe where the post-protocol treatment was probably not that good, that up to five years, the curves were superimposable and they started splitting at five years. And that could happen in determination trial. Let's say at eight years, maybe they start splitting. Maybe the difference won't be huge, but even if it's like five to 10% always difference, I think you know, I mean, that would be significant. So I think we still cannot say that there is no OS, um, you know, difference in determination. Okay, we need quick follow-up. Follow Whatever you see in eight years, let's say it comes to 5%, with the drugs on the ground 2023, do you believe it's a bigger or smaller than that 5%? Whatever comes out of determination. It's probably smaller, but yeah, you know, okay, the drugs okay. that we ha have yeah. now, they are not that safe either, right? Teclistamab probably has more treatment-related mortality than auto does. So if I rough. can do an, uh, yeah, if I can do an auto and then give them a really long PFS1, then that maybe, you know, push down the road their need for getting another triplet or teclistamab, which has its own problem. So, well, you we know, used to that's... We call CAMPATH liquid aids, and someday they're going to call teclistamab something. I don't know what it is, but it's... You know, the big mistake with teclistamab is it doesn't need to be given forever. Okay. I mean, come on. And so frequently. So frequently, flo you're flogging the shit out of this. You need, uh, there's a reason why we have BCMA. Uh, some of it is bad, but you do need some of it, okay? Yeah. Or you're gonna get infected with things that normally infect shrubs. Okay, so, all right, Mani, Yeah, transplant. I'm gonna give my answer, um, yes. but before that, I just wanted to comment. It's almost like it's half a joke, but half serious. Like, you know, the curves at eight years, well, there might be a split because of MDS and like leukemia-related deaths as well That's down true. the road, which the might way. actually disadvantage the transplant arm. But I'll tell you my perspective. Yes. So I think that 2022 in many ways was a year of reckoning for auto transplant. And I say that as a transplanter, as somebody who still does a lot of autos, um, and for two reasons. Uh, one was a determination, which contrary to IFM 2009, with with very little crossover to transplant Correct. upon progression, you still did not have an OS difference at eight years of follow-up, which is very powerful. And granted, considering that the average age of diagnosis for myeloma is like 69, you know, you have somebody in their 70s and you can't really look them in the eye, even though those patients weren't even included in the trial, but you can't really look them in the eye and be like, 
The likelihood of you being alive and getting to your 80s is different if I take you to auto or not. The likelihood that you're going to have a rougher few months with auto, yeah, you're going to have a rougher few months, but I can't guarantee it's going to make you live any longer. So that was one important piece of reckoning. The other trial that was a reckoning for auto transplant was was a trial from the German group in which they compared MEL140 for patients older than 65, and they compared it to continuous Lendex, a doublet, not even a triplet, not a quad, and MEL140 could not even beat the doublet. So this was very, very powerful information because in the past we would routinely, you know, reduce the dose to 140 and, and, and just say, you know, let's go ahead and do it. And now I am like, you know, if you can't give MEL 200, you might as well just not even do a transplant because MEL 140 in on that trial at least couldn't even beat Revlimid Dex, dexamethasone. Mm. I think there's a lot of nuance and it's a really long, complicated discussion to have with each patient. I think there are, you know, despite the quality of life curves overlapping, which as you pointed out, I think that um, some patients, you know, really value the numbers staying down for a longer period of time. Um, and the fact that they won't be put on something other than Revlimid for a long period of time. Some people value the fact that you can go to a transplant and get rid of weekly infusion therapy after just four cycles, as opposed to with a non-transplant approach where conventionally we give eight cycles of therapy and then we de-escalate. So there's all sorts of factors that go into this equation. And I think that I'm willing to entertain Raj's um, you know, philosophy for a, like, for a young patient um, where, you know, maybe like the eight years of follow-up is not enough. And and maybe for all, you know, there might be a difference or there may not be. Uh, but for, by and large, I think that, yes, my I have shifted in my thought process. Um, and I think for standard risk patients who achieve, you know, decent responses to therapy and who don't particularly prioritize a long PFS and they understand what PFS is, I think that, you know, uh, for going upfront transplant is very reasonable. I do collect these patients uh, just to keep that door open for them in the future. I think for young high risk, I prefer to do a transplant based on some of the data we've already discussed. And for most patients, um, you know, who have who, who are frail, who are older in their seventies, I do not generally do a transplant anymore. And that is generally, you know, your average person with myeloma. Obviously, after a thorough discussion and, you know, you obviously look at what the patient, what their values and preferences are. I completely agree with 70 or higher. I have almost, you know, like I do very rarely, you know, unless it's like a marathon runner, early 70s with high risk. Otherwise, I will do like Dara Revdex in those patients given such good data with that. Um, that I'd completely agree with. Okay. My closing thought yeah. to you both. Okay. No, that's it's all good. My closing thought, and I'll see what you think. Okay, so I think we'll four, the three of us will agree that there are four things we want in myeloma. The goals. Okay, one, we want them to live as long as possible. I think everyone will agree. Two, all things being equal, we want them to live as well as possible, as best quality of life. Okay, three, all things being equal, we want to achieve one and two with the least amount of time on drug and, plus minus and toxicity. So like, if you can do it with three bursts of treatment in the course of your life rather than continual dribble of treatment and the three bursts have the same amount of toxicity, like that's preferable because you have more treatment time away. Okay, and four, all things being equal on those three metrics, then the cheapest is the best if those, if those three things are equal. Okay, you agree? I agree, very idealistic, but yes, that is what but, I but want. That, but that's the goal, right? Agree. And I think even the people we disagree with agree that that is the goal. Absolutely. Okay, now I'm thinking, that if, you, if I look at the whole trials landscape and I think about the three goals, I'll be like, I would, I would conclude differently, to be honest. I would look at the trials and I'd say, these can't be their goals. 
I mean, maybe one of their goals is they do want people to live as long as possible. That might be a goal of theirs. Quality of life, I would say, from my observation of it, when I see them like giving car tea to smoldering, I'd say maybe, they, maybe they're not that interested in quality of life. I mean, just an observation. Three, I think they don't seem to be that interested at all in time off therapy, not anymore. In fact, they're some comfortable with like, quad, you know, there'd be quadruple, quadruple maintenance and like just indefinite therapy. And then in terms of price, I see like there's no, you know, they just really, I mean, as to, I don't see anyone interested in that. I, I can't remember the last time I went to a presentation. I was like, and by the way, the conclusion is, even though we achieved a similar overall survival, it's much cheaper. I don't see that in myeloma. Okay. So what I'm thinking is, okay, how do you incentivize these doctors to do the right thing? You know, you're talking about changing their mind. The mind is an impossible thing to change, as we know. The, the doctor mind is a rotten organ that doesn't change once it's set in its ways. But how do you incentivize them? So here's my proposal, okay? You go to the cooperative group. And you say, every time you do a trial in high-risk smoldering myeloma, if you achieve like a, a one-year OS benefit or two-year OS benefit, we're going to give all of you investigators a little bit of money, okay? And every time you go to somebody with standard risk or low-risk myeloma, and you find a way to peel off a month of treatment or to lower the price that we pay for them per you know, year of treatment, we'll give you all a little incentive. We'll pay you. Like you, you get, you get a $10,000 bonus. If you investigators can think of a study that can minimize, that can cut the, keep the OS the same, keep the quality of life the same, and you cut a year off treatment, I'll give you $20,000. Or maybe for these myeloma docs, maybe we need $100,000. We gotta talk real money. I mean, these are myeloma docs, let's not kid ourselves, okay? So I guess, okay, so then, and then you say, but of course the statistician has to be comfortable that you're not losing OS, like because you're underpowered, like you're really not inferior, you know, et cetera, okay? I feel like if you think about the incentives in the system, there's some incentive towards, the real incentives in the system are to maximize the, I mean, the companies have to agree to all these things, and their only incentive is to maximize the revenue. I mean, that's their primary incentive. The OS is a bystander, and quality of life is a bystander. And I think if we had my incentive structure, the whole, all the trials we'd be doing is different, because yes, we'll still have some smoldering trials, but we'll probably have a lot of trials of peeling off therapy, or as you say, using imaging to find people who not to treat, right? Mm -hmm. And so I guess I wonder if you'd walk through this thought experiment a little bit, you know? Um, is there a way to in incentivize the investigators in ECOG and SWOG to think about these studies? What would be the sort of thing that you would reward financially to the, to the investigators or, or the cooperative group? If you, guys can, if you guys can prove VRD is as good as KRD, or if VRD is better than DRD, they've never been tested head to head, you guys get to keep half the Medicare savings and you can run more trials, things like that. So the government would pay, would pay the cooperative Cause, groups? Because like right now, government, every year Medicare spending, you know, maybe $100 billion on myeloma. Myeloma is one of the most expensive diagnoses per year. And so Medicare says, if you guys can figure out a way that we can take all these people off DARE-RD and put them on VRD, we're going to save per patient 200K per year. And you don't get all of it. You get 20% of it, though. And 5% to the investigators and 15% to the group. Yeah, so okay. your your solution is very provocative, and yes. as I think about it, um, you know, so I've been I've been trying to engage with the with the SWOG group, and it's been really good. I've I've learned a lot through the process. I think that one thing, and this is not just unique to myeloma, is that um, cooperative groups sometimes run the kind of trials that industry would run anyways. Exactly. And if the incentives were aligned in, in such a way that the cooperative groups were used primarily to do less is more trials, that would be great. 
rather than cooperative groups doing trials that you know are just an extension of what pharma does and if cooperative groups did less is more trials they would not necessarily need to get pharma funding for that right because you're not really you're doing less than what this what potentially less than what the standard of care is so that is a missed opportunity and i think some government initiatives where you know a certain proportion or the majority of cooperative group concepts have to be like de-escalation concepts um, might be a step uh, forward in that space. Um, but my only addition to that is that the only way to get them to do that is to pay them directly for doing it. Because right in the current system, the reason they won't do it is that even if the day you go to SWOG, you're told to do that, the next four days of the week you gotta meet the company and you're, doing the other, you're going on the other direction, you know? The only way to get you to really do it, you know, to really listen to this podcast and do what we're telling you, is SWOG will get 20% of the money and you will get 2% of the earnings in your own pocket if you can find a way to save. I mean, I don't disagree. You don't disagree? Okay, yeah. what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that would be that would be great. Um, I don't know, but you know, one of the problems that I recently, uh, not prob not like really problem, but one of the things I saw in Picori, for example, so we are we're trying to apply for a grant um, in AL amyloidosis for a less is more kind of concept in, in Picori. And you know, they clearly mentioned that you cannot apply for a grant for a study that looks at, at cost of two interventions. Right. That's so why, that's why Congress made that. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. So I think those kind of studies should probably be prioritized. You know, there should be a mechanism. You know, for maybe not only the cost. You know, toxicity also, of course. You know, or healthcare utilization. But you know, if you can like design a study which will decrease the cost significantly, those should be prioritized. There are some, uh, I would say, efforts happening. For example. In, in SWOG, you know, uh, in frail patients, they are, um, there will be a study open hopefully soon where they are trying to de-escalate maintenance. Um, and, you know, similarly, in, for example, in the COMMIT consortium, they are doing some MRD-guided de-escalation trials. So hopefully we'll see more of that in future. Yeah, I guess one yeah. of the problems is that often we have less is more studies that are funded by pharma, but you decrease something, but then you add something else, right? right? Like... You know, there have been some pharma studies that have been called as MRD-guided de-escalation. Yeah. But in reality, you really escalated things from standard of care, and then you de-escalated if they became MRD negative. So it's not really a de-escalation study. So true de-escalation, true less is more studies, I think they have to be done by, by cooperative groups and, and without, without pharma funding. I totally agree, and I actually think this is probably one of the best podcasts I've ever heard, you know, being in the room with you all. Let's see what the audience thinks. But... Um, you know, I guess I totally agree with you, but in my mind, I, I, I think that the only way, I mean, I, I just get, like, everything we've said, to, uh, how can I put it? All of the arguments that we have made, and we have a lot of overlap, but a lot of, uh, some differences, but it's really hard to argue against the areas of overlap. And yet, if, we, if I were to objectively say our points of view on early treatment, on maintenance, and on transplant are not the midpoint of the field. We are on, at least on one edge of it. Raj is less of the edge, I'm more of the edge, but we are not in the midpoint of the field. And I guess, to me, all the people in the field are, are brilliant people, they're smart people. And when smart people reach conclusions that are, I think, illogical in some ways, to me, I think that there's no amount of data or evidence that will persuade them. It has to be some incentive. And I don't know, I mean, I'm just spitballing about my idea of, of giving them some of the money back. But, you know, to your point, I agree with you. Less is more trials should be the priority. It should be the trials that, that pharma doesn't want. Sometimes you, we shouldn't make the cooperative group have to beg pharma for the drug. The government should just pay for it because we can save money that way. But I think we have to find a way to incentivize them or they won't do what we want them to do. And, you know, I'm, that's what I'm thinking about lately. 
All right. Closing thoughts. Thank you both for doing this, taking time away from your busy schedule. Raj, well, closing thoughts. You want to plug your podcast? Tell them where to find it. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, so first of all, it was great, you know, uh, talking about all of, you know, smoldering myeloma, which um, something close to our heart and money and I talk about it all the time and how we approach smoldering myeloma and slim. Uh, yeah, regarding our podcast, so people can find it in any podcast outlets like, you know, Apple, Spotify. Uh, we are also uploading our videos on YouTube, you know, some of them. So we still uh, haven't uploaded the older ones. And we have some exciting episodes coming on um, myeloma, for example, bispecifics in myeloma. And, and if I want to taste Teferi, Mori Gertz, what are the other two, three? I, if, I, if I want a taste of your show, which I listen to. So, yeah. Um, Teferi, uh, you know, Mori Gertz. So, so those were definitely really good. I would say... Other than that, uh, we recently had an episode of Mandel cell lymphoma with Dr. Mm. Martin Drayling. That, mm. that was also very good. We discussed about shine and mm, triangle trials. And uh, yeah, other than that, I would say there was one episode which actually didn't get much attention, but I think it was really good, is Dr. with Dr. Advani on ALL. She really walked through the whole like lance treatment landscape of you know ALL. That was before the Blina you know trial came along. So we have to do an update on ALL treatment. This Contharjan study. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That okay. no, not not that not one. Not that one. The, oh. yeah, the oh, one with uh, Dr. The Lizzo, Mark Lizzo. Uh, yeah. yeah. I yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I think that episode we really enjoyed recording with Dr. Advani. Okay. And Mani, closing thoughts. So my closing thoughts are that um, you know when I when I spend time with people like Raj um, and you know some of our other young colleagues, I am filled with with hope and optimism that perhaps we will be able to pull off some less is more trials. Um, and maybe I'm just uh, you know never ending optimist, but uh, I <laughs> think that you know together hopefully we we can do some less is more trials, and we're actually like doing some progress uh, in that space and hopefully in a few years we'll we'll have some some tangible progress in, in terms of less is more uh, but thanks for having us and do you have anything to plug um so <laughs> i think that um we we spoke about revlimid right i think that it, the the time is ripe for us to to try to get rid of continuous revlimid maintenance for at least a subset of patients uh, so that's one big less thing. is more trial exactly yeah. one really big thing that 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 I want to do which hopefully um, we can use the the swag mechanism for that and then I think that it is also one more thing that Raj and I are working on is I think we need to clearly define the natural history of smoldering myeloma today so hopefully we'll have some um, some progress on that as well that's great and if you're listening in Europe Western Europe. There's no reason Mani's trial of discontinuing Revlimid should only be done in the U.S. So if you have a connection, email Mani. He's at Utah. You can find him on uh, PubMed. All right. Thank you, gentlemen, for doing this. This has been great. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you.